Welcome. This is The Frame Shift. I'm your host, Adam Green, and today I'm speaking with Eric Youngst. Eric is a professor of social medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he's the director of the Center for Bioethics at UNC. Eric, welcome. Thanks, Adam. Happy to be here. So Eric has done work in what's called ELSI for, for quite a long time, since the 90s, I believe, when uh, ELSI stands for the ethical and legal and social implications of this case uh, of genetics and genetic technologies. So Eric, when you got into the field, what sort of biotechnologies were, were coming about and, and you all were trying to address? Well, I got started in bioethics in the mid-80s. And at that point, we were talking about in vitro fertilization and predictive genetic testing for rare mutations. But in 1990, two important things happened. One was the very first clinical trials for gene therapy. And that, of course, came with a whole debate about what the limits of human genetic engineering should be. And then on the other hand, it was the kickoff for the Human Genome Project, which was the ambitious attempt to map all the genes in the human genome and, and uh, decode them. So in 1990, I got a chance to go to the NIH and be program officer, essentially, for this experimental program designed to fund research on the ethical, legal, and social implications of human genome research. So I, I believe in 1990, French Anderson, he, he, he had the first successful clinical trial of a, a gene therapy. That's right. And we can talk about gene therapy later because it, it's especially germane now. Uh, germline gene therapy, given the, these new technologies like CRISPR and prime editing that, that have come about in the past decade. But, but in the early days of LC, what were the, 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 the main ethical frameworks you were using? So I've, I've read about somatic versus germline read about primary versus secondary prevention. What, what, what other frameworks were you thinking with? That's a good question. We were um, coming at the issues that we could anticipate from human genome research, is what kind of questions might be raised once we are able to uh, tell you which mutations they, you have and what they might imply for your health. Uh, coming at that from, on the one hand, traditional ethics of clinical medicine, a solid tradition there with a framework focused on not doing harm and benefiting patients, respecting them as, as persons in their own right, telling the truth, <laughs> all, confidentiality, all the important virtues of being a good doctor. And on the other side, we were coming at it from research ethics, the tradition of uh, the rules we use to govern human subjects research, because after all, the genome project at that point was very basic research. So what, one distinction that, that you wrote about, I think in 1995, was this distinction between genotypic and phenotypic prevention. Pre prevention, yeah. yeah. Pro prophylaxis is the yeah. thought in medicine. Yeah. Could you briefly explain what that distinction means? Right. Well, in uh, genetics, we've we talk a lot about using genetic information to prevent disease, but there are really two important interpretations of that that are useful to disentangle. On the one hand, we might mean preventing the manifestation of clinical diseases, preventing symptoms, 
of clinical disease in a patient as when we screen newborns for things like fetal ketonuria in order to put them on a special diet to prevent their genetic disease from unfolding. On the other hand, in the past, we've had fairly few options to do that kind of phenotypic prevention. So medical genetics has traditionally focused on what I call genotypic prevention, preventing the transmission of of, uh, defective genes from one generation to the next. And that's done in the context of families and couples making decisions about what kinds of children they'd like to have. Let, let's talk about uh, something you, you wrote about genotypic versus phenotypic prevention in the, in the context of germline gene therapy. So in, in a paper you wrote in the 90s, you, you were talking about where, uh, where medical practitioners should draw the line b- between things that fall within their purview and, the, and that they should do, like phenotypic prevention and th- things outside their purview, uh, like genotypic prevention. So I, I gather you're opposed to coercive genotypic prevention, as most bioethicists are. Uh, are you opposed to genotypic prevention in principle for, for anyone, or, or do you just think it should be limited to, to the family in their decision-making? Right. Um, it, it's the latter, because um, medical genetics actually has a robust tradition of uh, trying to protect that sphere of privacy around reproductive decisions. they Their whole business is helping parents make those decisions with information. But since World War II, essentially, they've been fierce about being non-directive in the advice that they give. And that's in the context of reproductive risk counseling. What's my risk for having a child with a genetic disease? Uh, What can I do to learn about my child's condition before they're born? We hadn't really thought about whether that would continue to apply once we were actually able to fix things in in the early embryos in the germline. And uh, we were suggesting in that paper that it should still apply, even though now once you have that ability, the professional imperative to try to do something to help those emerging persons who have now suddenly become patients in their own right um, gets stronger and stronger. Right. Just to, just to reiterate, or make sure I'm understanding what you're saying, until the advent of germline gene therapy, the, the, the possibility of there, there even being germline editing postnatally, what wasn't even on the table, and therefore it was beyond ethical consideration. But with this technology coming about, we have a whole new world of possibility of should we do this, should we not? That's right. And that's against a a historical backdrop of the shadow of the eugenics movement before World War II, where we did think we knew enough to uh, be directive in terms of guiding people's reproductive choices uh, in order to protect the genetic health of the population. Yeah, let, let, let's get into that. I see uh, you have Nathaniel Comfort's yeah. uh, Human Perfection, uh, a book about the various eras of eugenics throughout history. And I think it'll be fertile ground for conversation. 
you have a concept called genetic meliorism. I don't know if it's your concept. Could you explain what that is? Thanks. Um, wow, you've done your homework. <laughs> yeah, genetic meliorism is the notion that what genetic science is going to do for us is to let us improve the human condition, improve our lives in an open-ended way. We'll just keep getting better and better. And it reflects a theme in American culture that's always been here. We've always been melioristic in the sense that we want each generation to have a higher standard of living than the last one. And we're, we, we like progress and we like advancing human welfare. And that's meliorism. Genetic meliorism is the idea that genes will be the best way to do this. Uh, working on our genetic inheritance would be the best uh, a technique for doing that. And it was right front and center in the eugenics movement. In those days, it was seen as simply a public health imperative to make sure that bad genes didn't get passed on and that good ones uh, did. Yeah. And in, in, in Comfort's book, he, he talks about this undercurrent of, I guess you could call it genetic meliorism, running through the eugenics movement, uh, the, the, the early movement all the way back to Galton through the, the progressive eugenics movement all the way into modern medical genetics and saying that the, that the impulse of all these movements is essentially the same and it causes us to fall into traps of genetic essentialism, uh, fatalism, reductionism. Right. But, but all that being said, what, what, what do you make of this impulse to, to, to ameliorate the uh, human suffering or disease? Do, do you feel like it's the, the right impulse to, to have? In its basic form, yes, it's a very healthy impulse. It's the impulse that drives medicine and healthcare generally. Um, we do want to improve human welfare. The catches are the genes the best way to go about that? And that's where the questions come up because when you start working at the genetic level, you're essentially working on families and populations rather than individuals. And when we've made that move in medicine in the past, it's always shifted the focus from individual clinical care to public health interventions in various ways. Yeah, and the, the intersection of those two, which Comfort talks about, it, is where it gets really interesting. And it, and it gets back to this, uh, what, what, what is the moral purview of a medical practitioner? But Suppose you have a family that, that's making their individual reproductive decisions. They, they don't do this in a vacuum. They, they face social pressures, economic pressures. And the, this can bleed into eugenics of a bad sort when these families aren't making decisions of their own volition, but, but feel coerced, whether explicitly or, or, or not, to, for example, uh, abort uh, a fetus diagnosed with Down syndrome, to screen against certain uh, genotypes in the context of IVF. So uh, how do we, how do we uh, m mitigate that risk? Well, it is, it's a good question because even though the clinical tradition of medical genetics has been aware of this risk for decades now and works hard to try to ensure that people's decisions are fully informed and, and uh, free of coercion, re the rest of society is still barreling along. <laughs> And you see its strong, melioristic, even uh, eugenic impulses in, for example, the direct 
to consumer marketing of genetic tests, where the message in the advertising is, if you're a responsible parent, this is what you'll do to prevent your kids from suffering with these kinds of conditions. And the reason that's different than any other public health campaign is that it forecloses on the question of what kind of children do we want to have? And that's the basic ethical question. Who should decide what sort of children we bring into the world? Medical genetics has always tried to be hands-off about that, not passing judgment about parents' decisions. But as I said, the rest of, of society makes its views known in various ways. Let's talk a bit about the, the rhetorical shifts in genetic medicine. You, you've written a paper about this, talking about the shift from personalized medicine to precision medicine to population health medicine. And this gets at the, the direct-to-consumer genetic testing you're talking about in that the, the, their marketing is predicated on certain assumptions about how, how effective genetics will be, and they employ a lot of this rhetoric. Right. So, so, so could you explain that, that transition? Right. Well, when the Human Genome Project finally was accomplished, success story for science in the early 2000s, of course, the next question was, what's its practical application? What are we going to do with all this information about our genes? Assuming that we don't want to reintroduce some kind of eugenics, <laughs> that's off the table. So what else could we do with it? And the idea was that, well, we can personalize medicine by getting a genetic profile on each individual and tailoring what we prescribe to their specific genetic susceptibilities and, and vulnerabilities. That's a, a pretty futuristic vision, and we're nowhere near close to that. But the rhetoric of personalizing your healthcare was uh, very successful in catching the public's imagination and in catching the private industry's imagination, because that's what they do is to sell personalized services to customers who want to try to take control of their own health by learning as much as they can about themselves. So along with that came, as you mentioned, a very deterministic and, and um, essentialistic view of what it meant to have be at genetic risk for a particular disease. The marketing of the companies was focused on trying to make an association between your genetic health risks or your genetic ancestry on the other side and your identity. Who you are basically boils down to these uh, minute mutations and, and markers in your DNA. What happened in, in about 2010 was that the wave of direct-to-consumer marketing companies caught the attention of the mainstream genomic research community, and they began to rethink this idea of labeling what they had to offer as personalized medicine. Instead, they realized we're not actually giving individual members of the public tools that they can use to improve their health. We're giving their doctors better information to tailor interventions to their patients. In other words, more precise information. And that's when they introduced this shift in terminology to precision medicine, because that took the um, use of the information 
out of the patient's hands and returned it to the doctors who were the experts that could use this precision equipment. So let's talk a bit about uh, medically actionable genes, which you've written about. So so when I was reading your work on, I'll call them mags, I don't know if you call them that. Yeah, we call them that. Sure, mags. Uh, To me, it felt like it was hearkening back to the, the simple time of monogenic disorders you have a variant or you don't, and it radically alters your risk for a disease. Whereas in this, you know, direct-to-consumer polygenic world we're living in, that all feels a bit antiquated. But nonetheless, I mean, this is where a medical practitioner really matters. If you do genetic testing for an individual and they they happen upon incidental findings, things they weren't looking for originally, the question is, should they disclose these to the patient? So, so how how should medical practitioners go about doing that? Could, could you talk about the the semi-quantitative framework? You had a paper on that, that oh, yeah. for, for this sort of decision-making? Okay. Yeah, the problem with genes is they're not very good germs. <laughs> the, the old model of one mutation in a gene, one broken gene leading to one disease, like a pathogen leading to an infectious disease, it doesn't work very well in genetics. Usually there are multiple mutations which can all con- lead to something very similar at the clinical level. And there are also multiple ways a single mutation can be expressed at the clinical level. So it's much more complicated and probabilistic. And that means that our ability to predict what we'll be able to do given the disclosure of a particular mutation, is um, complicated. We do have um, growing bodies of literature on the effects of these different mutations, so we can begin to say things about how predictive they are, how um, uh, severely they'll be expressed, how soon they'll be expressed, and that sort of thing. And so the semi-quantitative metric was a device developed by my genetics colleagues, Jonathan Berg and Jim Evans, to come up with a score for a given variant that would let us make a decision about how important it was to disclose that to the patient. And the idea was you would score it against several criteria, the predictiveness of the uh, variant, the treatability of the disease that you were predicting, the severity of it, the time of onset, all those variables and give them each a a, a score and then tally up the total and you'd have a measure that would let you know in general whether it was worth warning the patient about or not. And that's been used now in a number of different clinical contexts. Also in exercises like deciding what new genetic tests ought to be added to a newborn screening panel, for example. So this seems like a, a situation in, in which personalized medicine has sort of made good on its promises, that we're talking about pretty limited cases and pretty rare diseases. It, this does seem like personalized medicine do, doing what it's supposed to do. That's right, in terms of giving people somewhat more precise measures of their own uh, genetic health. And then the question is, great, where are the remedies on the other side of that? <laughs> to fix the problems or or avoid the risks once we've identified them. Yeah, to to 
if you consider BRCA, that this gene associated with breast cancer, I think if, if you have a certain variant, I, I don't know the odds ratio, but it, it significantly increases your risk of, of having breast cancer. To, to what can we do to prevent that? N- nothing, it seems, but you can screen people more regularly. So at the population level, you're going to identify these cancers earlier than, than you would otherwise. But, but as you say, we don't really have good treatments based on genetics. We can just tell you that this is coming down the pike. Be prepared for it. That's right. Um, originally, it looked like those BRCA1 and 2 mutations gave you an 85% increased risk of experiencing breast cancer over your lifetime. That seemed pretty significant, and so worth warning people about. But the only thing you could do about it was not genetic at all. It was surgical. <laughs> you could have a prophylactic double mastectomy, which is pretty radical surgery, to protect against what everybody knew was only a probabilistic risk. You may do the surgery and for no good reason, in other words. may never have uh, uh, Cancer may never have appeared. But when Angelina Jolie made the decision to do that in re, in response to her own uh, genetic test, it set a precedent around the country, and a lot of people have gone that route. It's a form of protection. It's not going to protect you from other kinds of breast cancer that are unrelated to this particular mutation, um, but it is the sort of decision people have to make, and it's not an easy fix. So now that we've entered the, we'll just call it the polygenic era, the era of direct-to-consumer genetic testing, I think 30 million, some odd people have been genotyped. I think over a million people have had whole genome sequencing or exome sequencing. So so the costs are rapidly declining. We're developing improved predictors of these common complex diseases that, that, that aren't just caused by a single variant, but that are, like you said, probabilistic. How should a, a medical practitioner navigate the, the, this new world where, I mean, it, as the name direct-to-consumer implies, it's uh, taking out the middleman, disintermediating the, the, the MD. So how, how should they guide patients in this, in this era? Okay, right. And the ironic thing is, of course, that selling the test directly to the public only delays the role of the middleman because what happens once you get one of these readouts of all your risks? Well, you take it to your doctor (laughs) for an explanation. And so general practitioners and family medicine folk are already experiencing the, you know, what do I do with this direct-to-consumer report that suggests that my patient has these risks? One of the things it often leads to is redoing the tests, uh, just to be sure, and then trying to interpret them. And they are probabilistic and complicated because of all the other factors that are involved in these chronic diseases. I like to point to the fact that when you read about these new genetic tests in the media, it's often accompanied by an illustration of a crystal ball with little chromosomes floating around in it, (laughs) Um, that this is really a form of fortune telling. Well, that image is pretty deterministic. In fact, it's downright magical in its uh, promise that it'll be able to tell you what your personal fortune is going to be. I think a better image for this kind of forecasting would be the TV weather map. 
and the doctor's role is more like the weatherman's role than the fortune teller's role because he's not going to be able to predict how each individual patient is going to experience the bad weather that's forecast. <laughs> but he can give them information that will let them prepare if they want to prepare and um, take steps to get out of the rain. I have to admit, I have not sold any physicians on this model. It's not the sexiest model. No, it's not. <laughs> you, you might learn something. Maybe not. Maybe nothing at all. Right. Do you, How much do you rely on your TV weather report? Give it that same amount of salt. Let's move on to uh, genotypic prevention and possible ways of actually implementing it. So you've written a bit about newborn screening, universal newborn screening. That, that, that isn't genotypic prevention. I guess that'd be phenotypic prevention. But you, you talked about how this could quickly slide into uh, some sort of precision eugenic co coercive authoritarian movement. Could, could, could you explain your, your line of thinking on that? Right. It's not so much a prediction about what will happen, but it's um, an observation about the, the logic of prevention. Because traditionally, we think that prevention is good because it intervenes early to stop uh, a disease that would come later and, and avoid that suffering. And the logic is the earlier you can intervene, the better, because it's even going to do a better job at, at um, um, letting the patient never experience the problems that they otherwise would have. Well, Newborn screening is a nice example because the reason we screen newborns is that that's as early as we could do it, at least on a live-born patient, to get out in front of their health risks. But, of course, these days we can do all the testing that we can do on newborns prenatally or maybe even on an embryo before implanting it if you happen to be going through IVF to have your babies. Or maybe even on uh, the gametes, the sex cells, the sperm and egg of the parents. And the question then is, uh, does it make a difference whether I'm screening for PKU after birth and treating those babies or whether I'm looking for it before birth with the idea of screening out those babies <laughs> and uh, avoiding the problem that way? And that has a very different history of course, than phenotypic prevention, which leads us back to that eugenic impulse. Let's dig a bit into this, because I think our, our opinions might differ a bit. So, so you, you spoke about this, this line of reasoning where someone might think primary prevention just nips the problem in the bud beforehand. You don't have to deal with the, the downstream consequences. Why not, from a, a cost-benefit perspective, from an ethical perspective, prevent this person from developing a disease and ha having to go through that, I, I believe you're saying that's, that, that line of reasoning lead, leads to some dark places, and, and therefore we should be wary of going down that road? Well, that's right, um, because once you've stepped over into genotypic prevention, you're no longer preventing a particular person from experiencing a disease. You are deciding which kind of people we want to have in the next generation. And that's a legitimate decision for parents and, and families to make, but not a legitimate decision, I think, for 
health professionals and and uh, public policy to make um, because there's so much else going on in life besides one's particular genetic defects. That's like saying all I need to know about a person is this one fact about them and I can make a judgment about their uh, quality of life and, and their worth as a person and decide to keep them out of the community as a result. That's the dark side <laughs> of genotypic prevention. And it's not to say that these kinds of decisions are uh, immoral to make as part of a family's own reproductive decision-making. I support that. But it gets scary when you have other people suggesting what the standards should be. That being said, surely there are some diseases that are just so dramatically severe and fatal that um, it wouldn't be a bad thing to advise parents against them. That's the comeback which people make and, and which some communities have decided to act on, like the Orthodox Jewish community in New York, which as part of their marriage arranging does genetic testing and uh, basically is a way to avoid marriages that might have a risk of having kids with Tay-Sachs. Yeah, if you, if you have uh, this recessive allele in, in your partner's, this recessive allele, then, then your child has a one out of four chance of developing this horrible neurological developmental disorder, Tay-Sachs, that right. average lifespan is five years or something. Right. So, so the, this would be an example of genotypic prevention, you're saying? That's right. That's a, it is an example of kind of community-endorsed uh, genotypic prevention when they build that into the um, approval of particular couples for, for marriage. Another type of genotypic prevention you talked about was prenatal diagnosis and selective termination uh, of pregnancies. Right. And also in the context of in vitro fertilization, Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, right? Which so so in in IVF, I believe testing for aneuploidies like Down syndrome, testing for monogenic conditions like sickle cell anemia, cystic fibrosis has become standard of care, right? But but it isn't it's offered, but but it isn't forced on on patients. So, so the question is, even if it isn't coercive, are, are parents pushed in a certain direction? That influences their decisions, and at the population level, is this is this causing the uh, the elimination of certain genotypes? Right, uh, because simply offering it is a way of suggesting that somebody thinks it's worth thinking about. <laughs> but if it's offered correctly, it shouldn't be overtly coercive. The risk there, the the new danger there, is that the easier it gets to do this screening, the easier it becomes to slide into a sort of routinization of it that makes it easier not to think about. And with our ability to do this kind of prenatal testing just on um, maternal blood, isolating fetal DNA that's circulating in the mother's blood, that makes the whole procedure quite simple, just a blood draw, and uh, easy to begin to just build it into prenatal care as a routine matter. And that's where these questions about, well, it's not exactly coercive, but people aren't given as much of a choice to make a considered judgment come up. So speaking normatively, you said that it seems like there are clear cases where 
like with Tay-Sachs, for example, that this sort of genotypic prevention is beneficial and morally permissible. Maybe in the case of sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis, in the context of IVF, for example, choosing an embryo that does not have these recessive alleles is permissible. You'd agree with that, you think? Permissible. That's right. It's certainly well within the uh, family's realm of authority to make that choice, a couple. Uh, but prescribable, <laughs> that's where I would begin to worry if, if the sense was that as a public health matter or as a professional matter, we ought to be encouraging people to do this. The, the equilibrium that, that, that I see is from a purely descriptive, not, non-normative perspective, and tell me if you, you see things going a different direction, given that parents' incentives are, are to give their child the best life possible, and given that the, the medical provider's incentives are to do no harm and try to prevent suffering of their patient, right? and given the economic pressure that might come from insurance companies, for example, even though individuals are protected by GINA for, for health insurance, you, you can imagine denying someone eligibility if they have a pre-existing genetic condition. So, so I, I, I foresee all these pressures conspiring to cause people to, provided that they, they have the ability to do so, select out these genotypes right. of, of their own volition, not, not being explicitly coerced. Does that seem plausible to you? Sure, it does. And you can already see some examples of, of that um, in the world. Um, there was a story recently about Iceland and the birth rate of Down's kids in Iceland, which is uh, lower than anywhere else in the world because they have the infrastructure of prenatal screening and counseling. And most people make the same kinds of decisions not to have those kids. And so there's only a handful of births every year. And those are the ones that slip through the system in Iceland. Well, it's interesting in the early days, Down syndrome was always considered, yes, sure, one of those uh, diseases we would definitely want to screen for and avoid. But as we learn more about Down syndrome and have more experience with kids with uh, disability, attitudes are shifting. So suddenly Iceland's campaign, ooh, it doesn't seem quite as uh, benign as it used to. I, I was talking to your colleague, Marsha Van Riper, and she was, she was telling me about how well-being for individuals with Down syndrome is they can hold down jobs. They're living into their 60s. So, so there's been this sea change in opinion. And the question is, could a, a similar sort of sea change happen in the future for, for some condition we currently think is, is horrible? That's right. So a lot of conditions are on a spectrum. And those are the ones that you come to mind most readily when you think about this is that... Um, well, Down syndrome is on that spectrum of intellectual capacity. So there are lots of other uh, conditions on that spectrum that we could um, wonder about in the same way. How much of our attitude towards them is simply social bias rather than, than something that needs to be of concern. But there are other things that are on that spectrum. For example, stature, height. Right now, under a certain point, we think of um, very short stature as a pathological condition, but it's really only pathological because people who have it can't fit into our world, <laughs> can't reach the gas pedals on the car or uh, the elevator buttons in the elevator. And so that raises the question of 
to what extent do we want to be working on problems that are essentially socially constructed problems, problems of living arrangements <laughs> uh, in the bodies of those who suffer from them? So the, the majority of people who are on the, the, the shorter side and the left-hand side of the distribution are, are typical in all other ways. It, it just a roll of the dice. They happen to be shorter. Right. So, so height is a sort of positional good. I, I think it's associated with high, higher levels of earnings, but it isn't inherently a, a good in and of itself. I, I mean, it's even slightly deleterious in that it lowers lifespan a bit. Right. So, so, so if parents do have the ability to, to select for these sorts of traits, which might quickly uh, become a possibility, what are the incentives going to drive us towards, you think? Uh, are, are people just going to select for taller children? It depends on what our culture and society prize and what we demand of, of these folk. Uh, probably right now in lots of first world countries, height is considered a virtue. It's a positional good, as you said, gives you some advantages, but that might not always be the case and or universally be the case. So the question is, what can we do as a society to keep this from being driven by fads and fashions just like our clothes are <laughs> from generation to generation. You know, this, this time, this generation, we all want the, uh, we all want beautiful pointy teeth for our children. <laughs> the next generation, it's something else. You find yourself in one of these Dr. Seuss stories of, uh, applying, uh, decorative stars to your belly or not. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't want to select out the star bellied sneeches. That's right. That's right. I think this is an interesting flip side of the the family versus public uh, distinction. So to, to before we were talking about how the public and it, its interests can apply pressure to families that influences the reproductive decision making. Right. But but I think the converse is that individuals' reproductive decisions uh, in aggregate can create certain negative externalities that we may need to to prevent from occurring. Uh, the, the, the question is, how do, how do we go about doing that without limiting people's reproductive autonomy? So, so height isn't a, that, that interesting of an example in this case, but you could consider a trait like uh, schizophrenia or bipolar. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so there, there have been some interesting papers, one of which is about an Icelandic sample showing that schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are genetically correlated with creativity. Right. Or, or another example you could think about is autism spectrum disorder and how it relates to innovation and uh, technological development and, and being an inventor. And, and so if parents were to try to create the best life for their child, they might say, I, I want to screen against these traits. But, but in aggregate, that, that would maybe cause a decrease in some of these beneficial traits for, for the public. So, so how, do we, how do we navigate those trade-offs? Well, uh, the quick answer is to say, right, we need to figure out some way to preserve that genetic diversity in the population because you never know when it's going to come in handy, um, when it will provide, when it will have an upside. On the other hand, the hard part about that is when you get down to specific cases and you're thinking about, well, does, does my child need to suffer in order for the gene pool <laughs> to benefit some generations down the line? And most people, if there were a quick fix for schizophrenia or manic depression, would say, 
Right. I think that I'd much rather have my kids live a happy and stable life and um, we'll discount the future effects. And whether that does lead to disaster down the road is a total unknown. It's always the case that something like this, when it's magnified in aggregate in the population, can lead to problems, as we've seen in agriculture and the Green Revolution and other places where we've tried to pursue particular traits over others. As you say, in, a, in agriculture, creating of a monoculture yeah. le leads to certain uh, liabilities to, to infections or different pests that, that can eat the crops away. I, I can't think of the, the analogous situation in genetics. I mean, you, you could think of everyone selects for a certain HLA, the, the, the immune system-related gene, and that, that could be disastrous. But, but I don't think anyone would, would actually do that. Right. Uh, but but you're talking about cognitive diversity, and maybe right. we need to to maintain that. To, given that we, we we don't know where we are in the adaptive landscape and what what sort of selection pressures humanity could face in the future, should we value genetic diversity, especially that related to cognition, as a good in and of itself, as a a protection against future future events we can't foresee right now? Right. Going out on a limb here, but I would say no. It's not a critical good in itself to try to strive for. It's a um, instrumental good. <laughs> it can help us achieve what we really want, but what we really want is a world in which all kinds of people can flourish, and uh, that's going to be about social arrangements a lot more than it's going to be about what that spectrum of cognition looks like. P provided that we have some sort of social arrangement to, to aid that person. That's right. So that it's a, it's a world that's safe for this entire spectrum of people to live in. <laughs> uh, then the pressure's off parents for having to use genes as the criterion, the no or go or no go criterion. Yeah, I, I, I guess the problem w w would be that the principle that the collective has interests that don't necessarily align with some some specific agent, some specific family. As we talked about before, even if we, in an ideal world, we'd have social arrangements so that anyone could flourish, the the the, the pressures are going to lead us to this point where, de facto, we're going to just value certain genotypes, certain phenotypes more than others and, and right. only accommodate those. Right. And there I think we can only fall back on the amount of cultural diversity there is in the world around us. It would take a pretty massive campaign to get everybody choosing in the same direction. Um, and um, I have a lot of, put a lot of stock in the fact that the world is chaotic enough that there's going to be plenty of people making choices that will maintain the diversity <laughs> in the population, even if we tried to stamp out a particular variant. Hopefully so. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope market forces won't lead to, right. to stamping out the sort of diversity. Final topic I'd, I'd like to talk about, one of the canonical dilemmas in bioethics is enhancement versus disease prevention. Briefly, what, what is an enhancement? I know there are a, a bunch of different definitions, but 
to you, what, what, what is enhancement versus prevention? So I think of enhancement as improvements in the body that go beyond strictly what we need to be healthy and help us with various social goals that we might have for ourselves. Improvement itself, just by itself, has never been a problem. We all want to improve ourselves. <laughs> and the question is, where does uh, medicine properly come into that self-improvement? And um, traditionally, it's drawn a line around our goal is to help relieve suffering and to give you the physical functioning you need to um, um, to achieve your other goals. But beyond that, we're not about making sure you're wealthy and happy and well-occupied, except at some marginal margins like cosmetic surgery, psychopharmacology in some instances, etc. Health promotion um, gets at that boundary as well. But anyway, one of the lines that's been drawn in governing gene therapy and gene editing has been, as long as we want to develop this as a medical intervention, it's fair to say we should draw the line at using this to treat or prevent disease and not try to develop it in order to um, help people achieve these other goals, athletic performance or musical ability or whatever it, it might be. And the issue with prevention is that there are many ways to strengthen your body to resist disease that, if it weren't for the disease part, would look a lot like the kinds of enhancements that people worry about <laughs> and which, in fact, might raise the same downstream ethical issues as those frank enhancements. It's the, the slippery slope people talk about. So That's right. If a, a person has muscular dystrophy, you, you can just imagine you could edit their myostatin gene and could replace their, their muscles and ha make them have normal tone. Right. Or uh, you, you can look up dogs on the internet where they, they edit the myostatin gene to, to downregulate the myostatin protein or, or whatever sort of molecule it is. And you have these jacked bodybuilder dogs. Right. I believe it's a similar mechanism of action. One is clearly enhancement. One, one is clearly... Um, treatment. Yeah, treatment, try, trying to regain species-typical functioning. Right. One seems objectionable. One seems totally fine. To, to muddy the waters a bit, what about immunization and vaccines? So, so this is something people bring up in this debate. We're, we're naturally defenseless against certain infections, but we're... We're changing our, our immune system to, to combat these infections. Is this enhancement? Should we object to it? Right. Um, I count that as an example of enhancement done for preventive purposes <laughs> and not something necessarily worrisome. And partly that's because immunization doesn't in itself give you social advantages, competitive advantages over other people any more than any other form of health care. So that's one distinction to make. A intervention which strengthened your body to do something better than normal in order to prevent a threat, for example, um, resistance to HIV, which was the subject of that Chinese experiment, uh, in itself 
improving the body's ability to resist HIV infection seems like the kind of enhancement that no one would complain about. Um, and that's very different than doing something that would allow people to use the same techniques, the same intervention off label, as it were, outside the medical context to improve themselves in other ways. There are lots of examples where if we're worried about gene doping in sports, for example, performance-enhancing genetic interventions, just creating a ban on research aimed at those interventions will not do much to close the door because the same kinds of techniques could be exported from the clinical setting into the, the sports setting. You spoke about the uh, Dr. His not non-IRB uh, approved experiment to change the these twins's CCR5 gene. What was really interesting in the wake of that is I, I think Rasmus Nielsen and some other authors published a paper saying that they were looking at UK Biobank data. They said if you do this, it actually reduces life expectancy by I think it was twenty five or something percent. Right. And, and so everyone was uh, looking to find fault with. The, the this Chinese doctor's experiment turns out m- months later that Rasmus Nielsen et al. had to retract the paper. It, it doesn't have this negative effect on, on lifespan, and I thought that was really interesting because it 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 shows our desire to to find fault with these sorts of enhancements and to right. to think there's no free lunch. Right. And I'm wondering should we, should we push back against that that intuition? I mean, should we be much more sanguine about enhancement? Are we morally blinkered by by the status quo we live in? Can, can we not see how good the future could be if we were to enhance ourselves? Or is that just the sort of thinking that leads us down very dark eugenic roads? I tend to think differently on this than I do about eugenics. I was a pessimist and a critic of genotypic selection, but I actually like the idea of enhancement. <laughs> uh, I, I think there are lots of ways in which the our bodies were not optimally designed by natural selection and that we could go about finding ways to improve them that would be essentially all-purpose enhancements that would allow us to take any particular path in life. Uh, the problematic ones seem to be the ones that shut down closed doors for people so that um, uh, you don't have the kind of freedom of opportunity that you might have had otherwise. But a HIV vaccine would not be one of those. What about intelligence enhancement? Right. Um, If we could um, find a way to do it fairly, (laughs) that's a big if, Um, provide access to it and a way to protect those that declined, uh, to protect the spectrum, as you said, um, then it seems like it would be a permissible thing to let people do. The problem with intelligence is, in some ways, the same problem with the HIV prevention is that genetic interventions probably aren't the most effective way to um, do something about that. If you want to improve intelligence, whatever intelligence means, um, there are lots of ways we can do that, whatever the basic uh, genetic endowment a person brings into the world, 
so much of our intelligence we grow socially that probably working on those social determinants of intelligence, the social determinants of health are going to be a, a better route, more effective route to get there. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit more pessimistic about you know, augmenting, or I, I guess even just improving intelligence through social mechanisms. From the data I've seen, it's pretty hard to do. Schooling seems to have a small effect on intelligence. But uh, I, I'm I'm far more pessimistic about this prospect of increasing intelligence. So, so, so if, if we were to stipulate that as a genetic intervention, no, as a as a phenotypic in yeah. So, so, so if we were to stipulate that right. phenotypic interventions don't work, would you be more open to the genetic intervention? Right. If we could, if we could make sense of it, <laughs> if we could decide on. Um, um, consensus view of what's going to count as healthy form of intelligence. You know, most of our measures are pretty skewed one way or, or another, culturally biased or uh, biased towards particular forms of reasoning. So there would be a lot of definitional work that would have to be done ahead of time. But then in principle, if by intelligence we mean the capacity to, to adapt to new situations, to solve problems faster, <laughs> executive functioning. Those seem like good things. All right. Final question. Inequality. It seems that unequal access to these technologies, which are quickly becoming a reality, could cause increased inequality. Do you think we should have a, a regulatory approach to this issue from, from the top down? Or, or do you think we, we this is something we just have to live with? I think it's pretty pessimistic about having a top-down regulatory uh, structure that would govern the world <laughs> in this context. So it's going to be, at some level, something we have to live with in the same way we live with health disparities and inequalities in healthcare access now. doesn't mean it's something we should stop working on, but you can expect uh, that the world's going to continue to be chaotic for a long time. And that means, yes, there will be gene-edited people amongst us, both enhanced and, uh, and uh, corrected, and that we ought to start thinking about how we want to treat them, how we want to, to give them the same uh, um, range of motion and freedom in life that we, we give ourselves. Today I've been speaking with Eric Youngst. Uh, Eric, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's fun.